Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you this day, we are excited. We're excited that we could sit at your feet and 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 read your word and, and listen to it. And we pray, oh God, that you would teach us and that you would give us ears to hear that, Lord, no matter what has happened this week or how tired we are or whatever it may be, that your spirit, Lord God, would bring your word to bear upon our souls because we need you. Dear God, we just pray this not only for our sake, but we pray this as well for your namesake. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we're going to finish up our our series on love from 1 Corinthians 13. So if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, that would be great. Um, We've been looking at uh, the preeminence of love. In other words, the importance. Without love, we are nothing, 1 Corinthians says in verses 1 through 3. But then we looked at the properties of love. You know, it's like that diamond and you take a diamond and you look at all the the different angles and the nuances of it. We've done the same with love as we looked at verses four through seven of first Corinthians 13. But today we're going to talk about the permanence of love and and verses eight through 13. And I I have to admit that as we come to the end of this series that uh, I'm reminded of of a preacher I heard one time who he just got done preaching on first Corinthians 13. And and he said, you know, he said, if I could just have another opportunity to preach through this passage again, I think I could do it better. I think I could do it more justice. And I very much feel that way this morning because there's so much here in this passage, and it's worth our continual study. So while we're done with this series, I would encourage you to consistently go back to 1 Corinthians 13 and say, Lord, teach me, show me, help me to see how this applies to my life, uh, that we might be a church that loves as, as God loves. Well, it is interesting that as we do look at 1 Corinthians 13, it does show us how we are to deal with other people, that we are to edify or that we are to build them them up. And we even read in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, that we are to speak the truth in love and that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Obviously, that is Christ. And that as each one... uh, is working properly, it makes the body so that it built itself up in love. And so love enables the body of Christ to to grow uh, spiritually and maturity. And so we've been looking at what love is. And last week we sort of talked about the tenacity of love. You know, love never gives in, nor does it ever give up. You know, it's more than just mere sentimentality. And that's why we said, you know, oftentimes this is read at at weddings, which isn't bad because believe it or not, our marriages need agape love. Amen. You know, we need agape love in every relationship that we have. But it's not just some, oh, that's sort of a cool passage. That's sort of that sentimentality. It's really more being tenacious. It's like that bulldog. It's courageous. It's hardworking. Love is is very sort of hard hitting. And so we looked at how love uh, believes all things, you know, bears all things, endures all things, hopes all things, and how love is not gullible, and yet at the same time, it's also not cynical, uh, but it's prone to trust, and it's slow to accuse other people, 
It's, it's not suspicious of their motives and always expecting the worst in people. Love is, is hopeful that God can change others, even believing that God can bring dead relationships to life. So in other words, love never gives in, nor does it ever give up. Love is not self-centered. It's not impatient. It's not unkind. And, and Paul goes on and on and on to share what that, that is. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Corinthians, but if you are familiar at all with this book, you understand that this is exactly, exactly what the church at Corinth needed to hear because it existed in a city that was sort of like, you know, the center of Vanity Fair. You know, everything about that city was immoral. You know, it was one of those cities that uh, was very materialistic. It was very antagonistic. Very competitive, very selfishness, very, uh, uh, there's a lot of hatred there. It was a very sexually immoral city. It sort of reminds you a lot of our country, unfortunately, and the church that, that exists there. And, and God called his church in that kind of culture to be a representative for the Lord Jesus Christ, to demonstrate his incomparable character as they lived out their lives before that, that culture, that they were to be salt and light. But the only way they could fulfill that calling was be if they would be submissive to his will. But unfortunately, they were not. You know, instead of the Corinthian church permeating the culture, the culture seemed to permeate the Corinthian church. It's sort of like evangelism in reverse, you know, unfortunately. And so the Christians... In Corinth, as you read through this book, you see they were very carnal, very worldly. They indulged their own desires. They were very selfish and contentious. And, and we see that throughout this book as they resented each other. They, they argued with each other. They, they shut each other out of their private little groups. They had their own little cliques within the church. Um, they sexually violated each other. They sued each other. They they boasted against each other they depraved each other uh, excuse me deprived each other in marriage they divorced each other they perverted the place of women in their church meetings they they withheld food from the poor and believe it or not of all places they did that at their love feast which is sort of ironic you know the lord's table was sometimes a drunken orgy uh, we see that they offended each other and they, they sought to have prominence over one another when it came to spiritual gifts. You know, they wanted, to, they wanted to, instead of using the spiritual gifts that God has given to the church, and we know from the New Testament that the reason God has given spiritual gifts to the church is for the building up of the church. And yet they didn't use it that way. Instead, they used it for their own selfish desires to fulfill their flesh and to serve Satan rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you know, all of these things were evident that the one thing that was absent from the church in Corinth was the thing they needed the most, and that is love. And I think we have to be careful as a church today that we don't look back and say, how could they ever be like that? Because I think if we looked at the church in America today, we might actually see some of the, the same characteristics as well. But whether it's to Corinth or whether it's to us here in the 21st century, Paul goes on in verse 8 and he says, love never ends. Or, or some of your translations may say, love never fails. 
Now, if you look at that term, now we've talked about what love is. We've been spending months on that, going through verses four through seven and seeing what love is. But what does it mean that it never ends? Well, the word there for ends means to fall. Literally, it means to fall to the ground. And, and it's used to speak of a flower that decays and then its petals begin to fall down to the ground. That's the picture that we're talking about when we're talking about end. It, it could be translated to be abolished. Love will never be abolished. Love, though, is uh, a flower which actually there is no decay. It never dis, uh, disintegrates. Love never does that because there's no decay in love. Love outlasts everything. So rather than love decaying or coming to an end, it, it lasts, it perseveres. And I, and I love the way that Paul says this. He doesn't say, you know, uh, well, anyway, I just, I just love that he uses the word never. You know, that's, that's a, that has to do with time. He says that love at no time will ever fail. It will ever come to an end. Never. So simply put, what Paul is saying here is, is that love lasts. Love is permanent. Now, some people, I think, when we come to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, get all excited because they think, oh, wow, you know, Pastor Rick's going to get into to all these uh, difficult interpretive issues, you know, here as he talks about the different gifts that uh, the, the Corinthians uh, liked. But I want you to know this morning, that's not my purpose to uh, untangle all the things about the gift of prophecy and knowledge and tongues and all that. It's a worthy thing to look at. But today my focus is really and my concern today is really primarily about love. And it is about how in light of these other things that Paul mentions of knowledge and prophecy and tongues, the reason he mentions those is to show that they will pass away in contrast to love, which will last forever. That's what I want us to see out of this passage. That's the big picture. The love is permanent. It is the greatest. And I want to say this again. It is the greatest of God's graces that he gives to us. Love is superior to all the other graces of the Holy Spirit. Now look down at verse 13. It's, we, Paul says, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. You see, Paul mentions these, what's known as sort of the triad of faith, um, of the Christian life, uh, faith, hope, and love. But Paul says that the greatest of these is love. It's not that faith and hope are not important. They are crucial in the Christian life. But if you really, really, really had to, to say which one of these is the greatest, you would see that love is the greatest. Now, why is that the case? Because love is rooted in the character of God. It's rooted in the character of God. What does what 1 John 4, 8 say? At the very end of that verse, it says, God is love. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, God does not merely love. But what, what John is saying is, is that, that he is love, that that is God's character, that he is love. So everything that God does flows from his love. Also, the source of the love that, that we have as Christians is God. 
So, so our love that we do for one another is rooted in the character of God. It's not merely uh, dependent upon our ability to love someone. So as you have those difficult people in your life, they may be very close to you. They may be in your own family. They may be your neighbor. It may be an extended family member. It may be a coworker, whoever it may be. You know, we need to remember that as we are called to love them, we do that not because we somehow have the ability to love them, but because God has his character is that of love. And that's where our love comes from. And so we can love them. And, and when the Holy Spirit gives us that new life in Jesus Christ, it is through faith that love unites us to God. It is the love of God that has evidenced itself in us. And his love has been poured out into our hearts as we've looked at from Romans chapter five, verse five in the past. And it has brought us, it is this love that has brought us into this relationship with God. And so we are enabled to love each other because of that relationship with God in Christ through love. And love is what one uh, person uh, coined as a communicating grace, a communicating grace. And what, what he's saying by that is, is that love reveals that we are children of God. It shows, it is evidence that we are children of God. Let me read from 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, John says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Now, how does he know that? He goes on, he says, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So how do you know if you've passed from death to life that you've gone to being an unbeliever to a believer? How do you know that you're a Christian? You know that because you love other people. But you know, that's not where the Corinthian church was. You know, it's, it was very ironic because if you look at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, where he talks about these different spiritual gifts, these were the gifts that the Corinthians were really uh, desiring. You know, they, they wanted these gifts more than anything else. And because they wanted to promote themselves and these gifts like prophecy and tongues and and knowledge, these weren't sort of gifts that you used in the background. You know, these were gifts that you used out front. Everybody could see if you had the gift of prophecy, you were standing up front like what I'm doing and you were talking to the congregation and everybody could see how great you were. And so these these Corinthians were seeking after those very showy kind of gifts. But in doing so, they were like walking over the top of each other and they were being very unloving towards each other. And what Paul says is here you are seeking after these things, thinking that you're so spiritual. And yet by your very actions, you are showing how ungodly you are. Because he said the greatest thing is not these spiritual gifts. These things are going to cease. These things are going to pass away. But the one thing that is eternal, the one thing that starts now and continues on into eternity is love. And he said, so what you people ought to be concerning yourself for is not being the best in these spiritual gifts. What you ought to seek to desire is to love each other. It's to show that love of Christ. So lo love has always been and love always will be 
because God is eternal. He, there's, he has no beginning and he has no end. And so therefore love has no beginning and love has no end. And so while love is not natural to us as human beings, because that's not our default response, is it not? It is not. But because God has poured out his love into our hearts and he's caused us to be born of God and to know God, therefore we are able to love each other. In one sense, you could say that the reality of the world to come, that is love in heaven, there is no sin in heaven. There's nothing but love. There's no self-centeredness in heaven. The reality of that world to come has entered our world through God's children, through the church. And so love expressed by followers of Christ living in community is in its very essence, an acknowledgement of the gospel. It is to say that God is able to save sinners, people that are self-centered and want to live for themselves and to do everything that only pleases themselves and they don't care about anyone else as much as they love themselves. God can set them free from that sin. And he not only can set them free from that sin, but he can change their hearts to where they will do the opposite, to where they will love other people, that they will lay down their lives and their own desires and their own wishes to minister in the name of Christ. And so a proclamation is made through our attitudes and through our actions as we, uh, as we speak with truth, as we are patient, as we are kind, as we are forgiving, and all the other ways that Paul talks about love in 1 Corinthians 13, as we do these things, we are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and that our God is a God that is different and our God is a God who is mighty to save. Amen? And so it's no wonder that Paul goes on. And if you look at just the very beginning of 1 Corinthians 14, look at how he starts that chapter. He said, pursue love. Now that word to pursue is a very strong word. It means to do something with intensity of effort, to run after, to chase after, to do something not only with intense effort, but also with a definite purpose and goal. Have you ever pursued anything like that? I know I did. I know when I met my wife, she wasn't my wife then, I pursued her greatly with great intensity, and she was definitely my goal. And I wanted her to be my wife. I didn't think I would ever be as fortunate to have her say yes to me, but praise God she did. You know, but I pursued her with that intensity. And likewise, as Christians, we are called to pursue love in that way. Uh, Linsky, who's a commentator, said, we pursue love when we set our hearts earnestly to practice love. You know, we're going to pursue that which we love. But too often, we don't give ourselves to pursue love in the strength and power of the Holy Spirit because it's too hard. It's too costly to love other people. You know, we, we like the idea of loving others, but we don't like to do it because to love others means by necessity that we have to start loving ourselves less. And that's the struggle that cuts through every human heart 
as long as we live that to love others means we have to love ourselves less. We have to lay down our lives. We have to die to ourselves so that we might serve others like our Lord and our Savior did. And that's something that the Corinthian church understood intimately, but unfortunately they did not do. And so Paul commands them to pursue love like he commands us to do so. You know, because one of the things, if you think about it, you know, we still believe in the Old Testament law, the moral law, that that applies to the, the church today. It doesn't mean that's how we come to faith in Jesus Christ is through the law. We come to faith or we come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, right? That's how we were made new creatures in Christ. But now that we're these new creatures in Christ, we now can obey the law because the law reflects the character of God. And, and in that law, we are commanded, there's sort of the, this demand of the law, that we love both God, we see that in the first four uh, commands of the Ten Commandments, if you think about that as a summation of the moral law, in the first four commandments, we are commanded to love God, and in the last six, we are commanded to love others. And so there is this demand of the law that needs to be paid to love others. And it's interesting because that's exactly what Paul talks about in Romans 13. Look at Romans 13 very quickly. We oftentimes don't think of love in these terms. But in Romans 13, 8, Paul says, uh, well, let me go back to verse 7. He says, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Then he says in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The law commands us, uh, demands that we love other people. And so... We do. And Jesus talked about the law and the summation of the law as we talked about in, in our reading today. That the summation of the law is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so Christ summed up the whole moral law, these two commandments. But these two things are inseparable. We cannot say that we love God and yet not love our brothers. We cannot love our, say we love our brothers and say that we hate God. Those two things go together. If we love God, we will love our brothers. And so the scriptures teach us that it's, it's going to be nothing but uh, heresy if we talk of our love for God and yet we not love other people. I mean, what does is, what is John say in 1 John 4, 11? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, that's not a recommendation. You know, that's a statement of us coming to die to ourselves and to love others. We're obligated because God loved us to love each other. Or, or listen to the words of John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how people are going to know if we belong to Christ. 
You know, like I said, it's not just a matter of sentiment. It's not just a matter of hypothetical fairy tale jargon that Paul is talking to the church about. This is a fact. This is a reality. This is a commandment of Christ to his people that we love each other. We have to love. Pure and simple. We have to love if we are in Jesus Christ. Now, we will not do so perfectly, brothers and sisters. I understand that. You know, we will not do so perfectly. And if you're sitting there today and you're trying to figure out who I'm preaching to, you're thinking, man, he's like getting on it today. So somebody must have done something this week. So who's he talking to? Well, I will tell you who I'm talking to. I'm talking to the man behind the pulpit. That's who I'm talking to. I'm talking to me. And I am talking to you if you are part of the body of Christ, because God has said to his church that you are to love. You know, I think about the words that Jesus spoke to the churches in the book of Revelation in chapter two and, and following. And, and, and what Jesus does is, you know, he takes these seven churches that he's talking to and it's like he pulls back the curtain and he says, hey, I'm going to let you guys see how I view you, okay? I'm going to let you have an insight into how God views your church. And, and you know, I just wondered about that as I thought about that. I, you know, what would it be like if God pulled back the veil of Kirk of the Plains, like the Apostle John unveiled the churches in the book of Revelation? And particularly uh, Revelation chapter 2 as he talks to the, the church of Ephesus. You know, what would Christ's assessment of us be? I know we're just a new church. We've only been a new church and, and met for worship for like three weeks, so we're like brand new. But nonetheless, God has called us together to be a body and to be a church. And what would he say? Would he say, oh, well, those guys are okay because they're Presbyterian. You know, they're, they're Orthodox. They're careful about, you know, the word of God. Yeah, everything's good. Is that what he would say? Well, look, if you would, with me to Revelation 2. Revelation 2. I know you've, you've read this passage before. You're probably very familiar with it, probably with all the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. But let us look again at what John says to the church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, that is Christ. He said, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Now, I don't know about you, but as Kirk of the Plains, I would take that. You know, I would love if Christ would see that in us and say, hey, this is who you are. That, that is quite a compliment. But then look at verse four. He goes on. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love that you have had at first. You see, in, in, in essence, what he's sort of saying here is, is that without love, you, you can't be a church. Without it, 
you're done. And, and brothers and sisters, this is a very sobering message. And, and, I, and I wonder, really, what, how Christ will view our church as we move along into the future. I wonder even what people in Andover and the surrounding area will say about Kirk of the Plains. I wonder what our reputation will be in, in Andover and the surrounding areas. Will they say, wow, there's a church. There's a Presbyterian church. As a matter of fact, it's the only Presbyterian church in Andover. Wow, isn't that great? Or will they say about us, wow, they are a very precise church. They know the word of God. They love the word of God. They're very careful. They're very precise in their theology and exact in the way that they do things. You know, they catechize their children. They have family worship. You know, they are careful to keep the Lord's day and to honor him in what they do. You know, or maybe they'll say, you know what? They're reformed. They are reformed in their theology. They, they emphasize God's sovereignty and God's love. Is that what we're going to be known for? Or will they say about Kirk of the Plains that it is a church where those people love? Those people, they love God. They love each other. And anyone else that they come in contact with, that's the kind of church that Kirk of the Plains is. They are known as the loving church, which includes loving the truth. Amen? Well, I'll tell you what. It is my prayer as your pastor that we might be a loving church, that that's what we would be known for, that we would put into practice that love that Christ has already put in our hearts. We don't have to go out. We don't have to try to love others. All we have to do is ask God to help us to take that love that he has given to us already and express that love in the situations in which we live. And we pray that we would be a church that would love ourselves less, that we might love others truly love them truly as Christ loves us so I don't know where you are today I don't know if there is a sense in which God is is calling you to trust him to love others around you you know maybe there's someone that the Lord wants you to go to and ask for forgiveness maybe there's someone that you've been more like the Corinthians you know, and you've really thought more about yourself and getting your agenda done and promoting yourself. You know, Sunday mornings are like the perfect time for that, right? Satan's like working overtime. You know, we all sit in here and you guys look good. You guys always look good. But, you know, you just sort of think, boy, I'm glad that, you know, everybody else in this room doesn't know about the conversations we had on the way to church or the way I treated my wife or, or you know, the way I cut that person off or shook my fist at the person as I was driving to church because I had to get to church on time and they got in my way and the way that we act. I don't know where we are or the things that we're wrestling with, but God wants us to come to him and to trust him. He has already given us his love, his character, and he calls us to love. And we have the freedom to do that. So let's uh, just bow our heads now for a moment of silence and meditation on the word as we 
think about these things and then we'll close in prayer. Oh Lord, we, we come to you today and we know that you know us as we have sung that we are, are people who are frail and weak, we are of dust. Lord, if we were left to our own uh, abilities, uh, we could try and try and try to love others, but we would just never get there. Oh, we would do things that look like love, but we would never truly, God, give up the only desires that we have for ourselves to actually love others. But we thank you and we praise you, O oh God, that that's not where our hope is. It's not in us, it's in you. And we, we just thank you for being reminded that love comes from you, that you, that is your character. And you have given us your nature inside of us by your Holy Spirit. And you are making us over in your image. And that is our hope. And we just pray for us today, Lord, that wherever we are, if there are our, our marriages that are here that are struggling or families or parent-child relationships or some relationships with uh, a friend or whatever you may be doing in our lives. That God, that you would help us, enable us to love. And Lord, I pray that we would be characterized as a church of love. And Lord, when we see others struggling with that, and we see each other uh, acting more out of the flesh than out of the character of who our God is, that we would not be high and mighty, but that we would humbly come alongside one another, bowing low to wash each other's feet, knowing, O oh Lord, that if it weren't for your grace, a grace that is greater than all of the graces that we would not love. And so, Lord, I pray that you would set us free this week to love others as you love us. And, Lord, may we show the love of Jesus Christ, not only individually, but corporately together, to this community and to those around. We thank you and pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.